This is Honora. My approach to even becoming a professional musician, I don't look for other people's acceptance. I just want to make music. I want the music to take you somewhere. So we're going to go on an adventure together. Y'all make some fucking noise for Tokyo Monster one time. That all just segued into starting my own label, four albums under my belt, many musical releases. Jennifer Lee, better known as Tokyo Monster, had built her career up from the underground beat scene in LA to play her music at the biggest music festivals around the world. But a rare and deadly brain disease would threaten to take all of that away. There's a very high risk of having a subsequent major stroke and a risk of not surviving. I think I'm gonna die soon. Why my little girl has that? I never think about I was going to lose my daughter at all, you know? What was even more significant was the fact that I lost my ability to make music. You know, I'm a musician, but I can't make music, so what am I going to do after all this? Best Dance Electronic Album. The nominees are Toki Monster. If you told me when I made that very first beat after surgery that I would have an album nominated for Grammy, I would have just been like, get out of here. How do you lose the ability to listen, comprehend, and in Jen's case, even make music. The cool thing about the relationship between the two is sometimes if you lose language because of uh, brain injury, you can use music to find your way back to language. I'm Sylvester Stallone, and this is The Comeback. I was always drawn to texture, and I think that's why electronic music was so interesting to me. It was sound, it was inventive, it was experimental. It just unlocked a certain part of my creativity. I've always loved using esoteric sounds in my music in non-traditional ways. I carry a field recorder with me everywhere I go. If I'm at the beach and I'm walking and I hear an interesting crackle beneath my feet, I'm recording it. If the ocean sounds beautiful, I record it. If I hear airplanes in the sky, I'll record it. How I feel when I'm in nature, why can't I bring that into my music? Because the music can take someone somewhere else. You can listen to the song of, and feel the presence of that plane. You can feel like you're in front of the ocean. You can experience that transportative quality of music. And I want to create something new, something that's warm and familiar, but also sounds that push the envelope on what music really is. And I love that. And it makes it fun for me too, because I'm like, what can I turn into an instrument? What can I do to my music to make it more immersive and more interesting? My name is Jessica Gron. I'm a music neuroscientist and professor at the University of Western Ontario in Canada. Music is a truly immersive experience. There aren't very many sounds in the world that can really transport us the way that music does. Very few other memory cues can produce this richness of memory. And it may be that it's because music involves so many different brain systems all interacting that gives it this power to really move us and transport us.
So my name is Jennifer Lee. I go by Toki Monsta. I am a producer, musician, DJ, performer based in Los Angeles, California. I grew up in Torrance, which is considered the South Bay of Los Angeles. My mom had immigrated to the U.S. from South Korea. My mom was very poor in the beginning, but around the time I was born, uh, she started a chain of Japanese fast food restaurants and became very successful and basically took on the role of single mother entrepreneur. I was very fortunate to be provided like piano lessons and SAT classes and things like that. I had that kind of cultural upbringing, but I already had, I guess, this contrarian attitude towards the way that I was raised. My mom had me do these piano lessons. Well, I simply just did not want to do them. Hello, this is Jennifer's mom. Oh, she was, uh, yeah, she was a very sweet and precious little girl. At the beginning, I forced her to play, but uh, later, I think she likes it. <laughs> the teacher always said that uh, Jennifer has a talent for music, but, you know, the tutor always say that, so, <laughs> yeah. It became a joke in my family that I was unable to play an entire piece of music, which is not true. I chose not to because I didn't like the whole song. That's sort of my early sampling experience, per se. Fast forward, you know, I'm in elementary school. I start listening to Coolio and West Coast hip hop yeah. and TLC and all these things. And I'm like, this is the jam. This is what I want to listen to. That became my thing. I liked West Coast hip hop. And then entering middle school, I discovered Wu-Tang Clan. And I'm like, oh, this is my shit. You know, this is what I want to listen to. And then discovering electronic music. That became a huge catalyst for me. And it started off with listening to house music, going to underground raves, sneaking out of my house. My mom would be super pissed, but she didn't exactly know what I was doing. Essentially breaking all the rules of an immigrant child, because when there's so much pressure put on you, that is the way I chose to react. And you know, many Asian kids chose to do that. Your parents constantly tell you how much you owe them. You know, they came to this country, they provided you with this life. You need to eventually become a doctor and put them up in a really nice house. Like, they're very blunt, at least with Korean parents. Fortunately for my mom, my sister actually became a lawyer, so that worked out for her. I'm Janet Song, and I am Jennifer's older sister. We don't have any professional musicians or artists in our family. My mother's family, they're all in Korea, and they went to great college. They went to graduate school, pursued professional career path of engineers, doctors, banking, basically, you know, most Asian parents' dream. So I figured if I went to college, I earned a degree, I work and do business somewhere respectable, then I can continue to do music. So yeah, I started making beats in my dorm room, then... I became pretty good at it. I started meeting other people that made music. I was introduced to a very cool music scene in LA called Low End Theory. Low End Theory has become my church. Low is church, Low is home. This is fucking the church. It's hard to imagine what else I would be doing on a Wednesday night. It's dingy inside, everyone's smoking weed. The scene that we were in, it was a bunch of nerdy producers playing beats encouraging each other to push the limits of what music is. Kids come out to like just hear what we are into for the week. And I guess as long as we're into good stuff for the week, they'll keep coming out, you know what I mean? It was, you know, Flying Lotus, obviously, no such thing. Daedalus, myself, 
there were not a lot of female producers in LA making hip hop beats or just electronic beats in general. In the early days, people didn't even think that I was producing. They thought I had a boyfriend that made all my beats for me. And on top of that, I am this Asian chick, you know, and there's already this kind of view and perspective on who I am as a person. You know, I had to really prove myself because to play beats in front of a bunch of men, you know, you really have to hold your own and be confident. And so you just saw this kind of like very regular looking Asian girl show up bringing the fire. Uh, I'm Jason Bentley. I am a Los Angeles-based producer, music supervisor, uh, former music director of KCRW Radio, and I still host an electronic music mix show called Metropolis for KCRW. Certainly Flying Lotus is is a real kind of celebrity in that world, but also uh, Daedalus and No Such Thing. I mean, Tokyo Monster is right there with them. And so you know, it was just, a, it was a, it was a cultural uh, movement and a sound and kind of part of the fabric of Los Angeles. I just didn't think it was feasible to become a professional musician. And I think a lot of that was how I was raised. It was just so impractical. We knew after college, she, you know, she went the traditional route of getting a job in an office and she was really unhappy. It didn't suit her. Unfortunately, 2008, the crash occurred. I got laid off from my job and I took that as an opportunity to pursue music. And at that particular time, you know, they're playing my music on BBC. People are reaching out to me to perform in Greece and London and Europe in Asia, all these different places. How could I turn that down? It's like people are just pulling me into doing this professionally. So I asked my mom to give me a year. I told her, for one year, I'm going to try to pursue music. And if it doesn't work, I'll go back to grad school. I'll do something else. I'll find another job. You know what? When she told me that, I was a little bit concerned and worried because the music field is very competitive, you know? When Jen pursued music, she broke the mold. But we knew that this was her path. And I was so proud of her because she had the courage to pursue her passion. I did it. I decided to take myself and organize my own tour to Europe. So I basically fronted the cash, went to Europe. And since that very first tour, I've been doing this professionally ever since. <laughs> I have a song I want to play for you. All right, let's do this. My first highlight early in my career was getting someone to release my music. Once I was signed to Brain Feeder, once Flying Lotus is like, yeah, this girl, we're gonna release her music, then that's when these offers started coming in. And, you know, I got to play Sonar in Barcelona. I got to travel to Asia and play in Japan. Around like maybe 2013 or 12, I got this huge co-sign with Skrillex and Skrillex started taking me on tour with him everywhere. I was flying several times a month. It really just changed so much for me and you know, it's crazy how far music can take you. When I saw her being successful and enjoy her work, I was very proud. Yeah, and I support her. <laughs> you know, in the world of, of dance and electronic music, there are a lot of fly-by-night artists and that's okay. And you may never hear from them again after that one record that was kind of a hit. 
Um, but that's, that's just the currency of the scene. You know, you're always kind of finding out about new artists and new sounds and new producers. And it's, it's exciting that way. There, there's just a lot of activity. It's always turning over. It's a very dynamic scene. Um, I think ultimately... Togi Monster's validation has come through, you know, how prolific she's been and how she's, uh, you know, taken advantage of having a foundation in a club scene and a community and a network. All of that's really important, but ultimately she has to transcend that over time. And she's done that. So the end of 2016, I was on tour. In the middle of the tour, we were back in L.A., great. I get to go home. I could do my laundry, uh, sleep in my own bed for the one or two nights that were in LA. While I was at home, I was just, I think I was just walking through the kitchen. I start walking and notice that I can't feel my foot. I already had an appointment to see my doctor during this short break. I shared this experience with her. I was like, hey, you know, this weird thing happened the other day where I was walking and suddenly couldn't feel my foot. And she was pretty alarmed by it. I should also add that I had already told her a previous issue I had. And basically in college, I started getting migraines. And what's standard for migraines is you have to get a bunch of neurological tests, make sure it's not a tumor, make sure it's not an aneurysm. When I had gone to a neurologist to check out my migraines, they discovered an area of stenosis in my left carotid artery. They did CAT scans, they did angiograms, all these things, and it turned out that even though I had that stenosis, the blood flow in my brain was fully functional. So every doctor I saw at that time wrote it off as just a mild abnormality. But I had one single doctor that mentioned Moya Moya. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford Anything, wherever you listen. Moya Moya is an extremely rare condition where many arteries in your brain start to shrink like that. And because it's a progressive illness, at a certain point, your arteries are going to shut all the way. On average, a lot of literature says it's very likely you're going to die before you're 40. But when I had mentioned Moya Moya to other neurologists and neurosurgeons, they're like, no, there's just no way you would have that. So I explained the situation to my doctor. I informed her of what I had gone through when I was younger. And she decided to write me in order to get an MRA and an MRI of my brain. I get my head scanned. Within a day or two, my doctor contacts me and she's like, the radiologist says that you have moya moya. My wildest fears were true. 
you know, in the back of my head, I always thought it was possible. And now many years later, I'm told that I have the thing many doctors thought I didn't have. So I had to really come to grips with what was happening. Both my sister and my mom were aware of all the scans I got when I was in college. So my mom was always worried. Oh, yeah, I was scared and break my heart. Why my little girl has that? I never think about I was going to lose my daughter at all, you know? And uh, there was nothing I can do about it. You know, she was only in her 20s and she has this, you know, brain condition. It, it was just traumatic. And, and um, just, you know, dark times for our family. Every morning, I went to church and pray, and then all my Bible group prayed together. I just pray that she found a good doctor who can give her best treatment for her complete recovery. I tried reaching out to doctors, and the best doctor in the U.S. is Dr. Steinberg at Stanford Medical. So I went and cold emailed the head nurse at Stanford in their neurosurgery department and explained to her what I was going through. I said, my scans say that I have only about 10% of blood flow through one artery and about 5% out of the other. I think I'm going to die soon. And she replied and she said, you know what, let's get you up to Stanford and let's get you an angiogram, a very involved scan of your brain. I'm Gary Steinberg, Lecrute Hurst, Professor of Neurosurgery and the Neurosciences at Stanford. I'm also the founder and co-director of the Stanford Stroke Center, and I'm the director of the Stanford Moya Moya Center. We saw that she had severe narrowing of her main arteries as they entered the skull base. Jen was having transient ischemic attacks, which are like reversible strokes. And in her case, that was characterized by transient numbness in her legs. I felt and I told her that it was a more urgent situation that she should consider having surgical revascularization to provide more blood flow to the brain. So I told Jen what I tell all Moya Moya patients, and that is without surgery, there's a very high risk of having a subsequent major stroke and a risk of not surviving. And I also told her that with surgery, the risk of having a subsequent stroke is much, much lower than without surgery but that there also is a very, very small risk of, of not making it through the surgery. We haven't had that happen, but it's always a possibility. It's challenging. It's probably the most challenging surgery that we do as neurosurgeons. So it's basically guaranteed death or maybe death, right? I would choose maybe death over guaranteed death any day. So I decided I would get the surgeries back to back because who knew what day would be my last. Each procedure lasts about half the day. So for the procedure, what I need to do is I use a scalpel to make an incision in the skin. I have to magnify everything 20 times with a microscope because the vessels that I'm isolating in the scalp and on the brain surface are a millimeter. I use a thread that is a third the diameter of your hair to sew the vessels together. What I have to do is open a very thin membrane that's covering the brain surface 
and I have to do that microscopically also. The reason for opening that membrane is to allow the new vessels to grow in without an obstacle. And by simply laying arteries on the surface of the brain, they can grow in new vessels over the course of a few months. So after the first surgery, I was in the hospital for like three or four days, then they discharged me for a few days before I have to go back again to the hospital for my other surgeries. I had friends come and visit me, like the few friends that, that knew, and we were playing dominoes. I wasn't very energetic, but I could still talk to them, like kind of normal. The day after they left, I woke up and then I couldn't talk at all. It kind of felt like being in a bubble. I couldn't say anything. I could only, I could gesture, you know, I wasn't devoid of thoughts and needs, but yeah, I couldn't say anything because I like talking. I like getting my point across. I like sharing. I have things to say, but when you can't say it, it's so frustrating. She was, you know, suffering from tremendous pain. She had mobility issues. I couldn't put clothes on properly after my surgery. Like my sister had to give me a sponge bath. I think she kept a lot of the really bad stuff, like the emotional difficulties, the depression, the worries, the concerns to herself. I knew she was having a hard time, but I don't think I knew how much she suffered afterwards because she just always kept up a very positive outlook. She had to take care of me, bathe me, feed me, remind me to take my medications, take me to all my doctor's appointments. So many different ways in which she showed me how much she loved me. It was very hard to see her. Uh, she couldn't walk and she couldn't speak. You know, she doesn't remember anything. So what I told Jen when she was having difficulty with speaking and understanding language, we believe the brain circuits are not functioning correctly because of changes in blood flow and inflammation. And that is what is repressing the circuits so they don't work correctly. Even though losing speech was significant, what was even more significant was the fact that I couldn't understand music. It wasn't until I started watching a TV show, specifically it was Portlandia, I realized that I couldn't recognize the intro to the song anymore. It, intelligently, I knew it was a song I know. I knew the song, but I didn't hear the melody anymore. TBH, I'm not like the hugest Portlandia fan. <laughs> um, the reason why I was on TV is because my boyfriend at the time, he came to visit me. And so he stayed with me for a little bit and he was watching it. So when he was watching it, I was like, hey, I don't like no comprende. I don't understand anything that's happening. I also couldn't understand the jokes. And if you have a show that you're watching that you already don't think is funny all the time, it becomes even less funny when you can, <laughs> when you watch it like that. Not to say like it's not funny. I think the show has its moments, but like, you know, it really depends. But I know the song. It was such a big song, Vaporwave. Like I was a part of that. Like I know what's going on, but I couldn't hear anything. And the way that it was distorted was so odd too. It just became like 
shrapnel. It just sounded like white metallic noise. Brain injuries tend to be profoundly disorienting. So our inner ear does a great job of, of sort of mapping pitch for us. And so if you send that signal up through to the brain, then the brain sort of knows, oh, okay, this is coming from the part of the inner ear that processes low sounds. And this is coming from the part of the ear that processes high sounds. Some people with amusia, this inability to really understand or process music, actually find music aversive. And their descriptions can include it sounds like banging pots and pans together. And that suggests that there is something about the neurons that are processing sounds, that they're not responding or getting the inputs that they're used to getting. And so the signals that they're sending are all messed up. So instead of hearing, oh, that was a low frequency note and it came from this part, it's like, oh my goodness, the whole inner ear fired all at once. So you're really getting these, these messed up signals. There was no distinction of tone. Just imagine um, taking a bunch of tinfoil and just like crunching it in your hand. And mixing that with what it's like to bag your, your garbage. And mix that with like banging on a metal trash bag. Like, it was just all those things combined. Like, I couldn't make any sense of it. You don't realize the part music plays in your daily life. You can hear music playing through someone's car. You hear it on the street, you can hear it in the elevator, you can hear it in a restaurant. Subtly, but it exists, and it soundtracks your entire life. When your entire life is without melody, it becomes a lot bleaker. Recovery from a brain injury is complex, but there are certain things we know help globally. One is trying to get enough sleep, good nutrition, social support can be absolutely crucial. I, you know, flew out to San Francisco to be with Jen for a month while she, you know, she got her two brain surgeries. You know, we were in a war mode, just survival mode. Jen's family was highly supportive. I was very impressed with, with uh, how attentive they were, uh, how much they supported Jen, encouraged her, told her she was going to recover, and gave her positive feedback, which we think is very important in terms of recovery. I don't have a very big family. I have like a larger extended family, but my family is my older sister and my mom. My mom came the month after to take care of me once I was back at home. and. I'm just completely indebted to them. I mean, their family, they really showed me what it was to be family. When she began to talk and started to bring back her memory of music and other things, I was so happy and cried. I don't think I'm well-versed in mechanics of the brain to explain it, but slowly I started hearing melodies again and I started recognizing things as music. What we believe happens when patients recover is that the inflammation that is inhibiting those circuits is decreasing. And some degree of plasticity, which is where other parts of the brain can, can take over and, and recover the language function and the music function. 
Imagine just a block of sound and then you start to take away the parts of it that is noise and you reveal a beautiful song. It kind of felt like that. It slowly formed itself into music again. The first attempt at making music was bad. Like it was bad as I was making it. It was not good. I knew that I was flustered. I was upset. I closed the computer, but I allowed myself the opportunity to wait. I just put that on hold and basically exactly a week later, I opened my computer again. I just sat in front of my computer for hours, like hours and hours and hours because I was writing this one idea. I was on one, as they would say in the rap world. Like I was on one, I was loving what I was doing and I really made the bulk of the song that first session. I didn't change other than very minute tweaks and adding vocals. I pretty much finished an entire song at that time. And when I finished that song, I was just so overjoyed. That song, even to this day, still makes me very emotional to think about because that was my triumph. That song to me was the sign that I was going to be fine. I wanted to be triumphant with this album. I wanted to show people I was happy to be alive. I wanted to celebrate. I also wanted to make an album that meant a lot to me. And I wanted to make an album that I was proud of. Not an album other people would be proud of. Not an album for other people. I was on my way to Hawaii because I was actually playing a show in Honolulu. And Basically, I looked at my phone, I had a bunch of missed calls, like a bazillion text messages, and I was like, whoa, what is happening? I open it and it turns out that I got nominated for a Grammy. And I was like, I don't know, I can't even describe it. It was just so surreal, but I was also hungover, so I was happy, but also like kind of sick. <laughs> and I was completely overjoyed. I think when you don't expect something like that, you're almost like bewildered. I'm like, whoa, I got nominated for a Grammy? Like, why? <laughs> like, what, what is this thing that just happened? Very gradually, but what I saw happening was music re-entering my life. And I, that's obscure too. That's a really hard thing to describe how things start to sound like music again. If you told me when I made that very first beat after surgery that I would have an album nominated for Grammy, I would have just been like, get out of here, you know? There's just no way. But the story that I hope to share with people, you know, that you can go through the darkest of times and come out more than just normal, you can come out on top. Yes, I was very proud of her, especially I know what she's been through. You know, I was sort of emotional <laughs> and almost cried, yeah. To go through something so profoundly disorienting and alienating from the world, from your past, from yourself, and then be able to come out the other side of that and build on that to produce a greater artwork than you've, you've managed to, to create before, it's just incredible. It would be cool if I became superhuman or something got better, but I just became myself again, but with less headaches. All my migraines went away. Other than that, I'm pretty much just regular me. And I'm still kind of forgetful, but I think that's also just me. Or maybe it's a surgery. I don't actually know anymore. So 
If I hesitate on a word or two, we can say that it's the surgery, but it might just be me. <laughs> the Comeback is brought to you by Imperative Entertainment and is created, written, and edited by Giles Andrew and Elliot Watson of Honora Productions. Executive producers are Sylvester Stallone and Braden Aftergood of Balboa Productions, Jason Hoke of Imperative Entertainment, and Trevor Groth of 30 West. The Comeback is produced by Honora Productions and Balboa Productions in association with 30 West. Original music for the series composed by Dan Powell. Sound design and sound mixing also by Dan Powell. Poster design and graphics by Dana Kim and Ricardo Imperial. Special thanks to Jennifer Lee, otherwise known as Toki Monster, Jason Bentley, Latany Hughes, Jordan Feller, Jessica Gran, Lewis Kunstler, Janet Song, Lisa Song, and Dr. Gary Steinberg. Extra special thanks to Toki Monster for her generosity in allowing us to use her songs, The Beginning, Death by Disco, I Wish I Could, and Rouge. Additional special thanks to Ryan Abushi, Dawn Bishwell, Alex Witherill, and Charles Denton. Key art photography of Sylvester Stallone by Michael Putland. Narration engineered by Skylar Kilborn. Please subscribe, download, and share, and follow us on social media for extra content and updates. Welcome to Talkville, the ultimate Smallville rewatch podcast. Guest star Sarah Carter as Alicia Baker. Although I didn't really work with her a lot. But Tom did, and they had some real big smoochy scenes. Yeah. Can we talk about that? Could there be any more sex? What was a three-page makeout scene that just kept going? Good Lord! We get it! They have chemistry! Jump in now or catch up on any of the past seasons of Talkville on YouTube or wherever you listen. The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.